Yes, indeed. A big warm thanks to the Brecky crew for kickstarting another day. But stick around, because up next is Discovery. And this week, we've got computer games. Are they dangerous? You darn tootin' they are. And the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Are we alone? Find out. Stick around. Welcome. 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 Stand and welcome. Hello, good evening and welcome. To Discovery. 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 Listen to Discovery. Discovery. <gasps> Discovery. Discovery. Sounds like a lot of fun. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. Now to the speeded up brain of a user, that sound lasts for four hours and sounds like this. Discovery. Uh, yeah. Yes, indeed, and welcome to Discovery, the only national science show on community radio in this time slot that... Well, no, actually, it's, it's the only one. That's the end of, end of statement. Um, I'm Chris Stewart, your guide for this jam-packed episode, and coming up on Discovery, we've got computer games. Should we be afraid? Noel Hannah will report there. And the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. If we can't find intelligent life down here on Earth, can we at least find some up in space? But first, Adam Richardson with all the latest science news. Doctors will soon be able to stop pain without the use of drugs. Researchers with the US Army and the University of Washington have discovered that ultrasounds, like the kind doctors use to look inside patients, can stun individual nerve cells. Doctors use a weak but focused beam of sound at 3 megahertz, well beyond what humans can hear, to identify the nerve. A slightly higher power is then directed at the nerve to make it twitch and confirm the targeting. And a final incredible pulse stuns the nerve, stopping pain being signaled to the brain for several hours or even days. Targeting nerves in the face can cause temporary paralysis for cosmetic purposes, like Botox without the risk. Researchers say this treatment could also treat body pain or be used to suppress involuntary muscle spasms in spastic patients. Another byproduct of the growing obesity epidemic has been identified this week. Researchers at the Adelaide and Meath Hospital in Dublin found that many women are not getting the correct dosage when drugs are injected into their buttocks due to high levels of fat. Many drugs are injected into the muscle tissue in the buttocks because of the high number of blood vessels there, but body fat generally has very few. This means that doctors have to use longer and larger needles to reach the muscle tissue. Dr Victoria Chan from the research team says that there is no doubt that obesity is the underlying cause of patients not receiving the correct dosage. The Gulf Stream, a warm water current that runs from Mexico to Scandinavia, making Western Europe relatively warm and hospitable, is running out of steam, prompting fears of a possible mini ice age in Europe. The warm, light Gulf Stream travels across the surface of the Atlantic Ocean on the way to the north, while cooler, heavier water from Europe sinks and travels south to form a giant convection current. Scientists at the Southampton Oceanographic Centre in the UK have found that the Gulf Stream has reduced in strength by 30% across the North Atlantic. They believe that it could be caused by large amounts of fresh water from the melting polar ice cap and Siberian rivers being dumped into the ocean. This fresh water is less dense than the salt water, and so it floats on top, blocking the Gulf Stream. The failure of the Gulf Stream could lower temperatures in Europe by as much as 5 to 10 degrees, a temperature drop comparable to the last ice age 12,000 years ago. But if these results are correct, Europe should already have cooled by as much as 2 degrees. Scientists haven't observed this. Indeed, they've noticed an increase in temperatures, prompting fears that the effects of global warming may be greatly underestimated. 
And finally, scientists at the International Centre for Medical Research in Franceville, Gabon, believe they have solved one of the great modern mysteries of medicine. Where does the Ebola virus come from? It's no secret that Ebola thrives inside primate bodies, so much so that it's one of the most feared viruses yet discovered. But while Ebola thrives in primates, it can't live in them. It kills them too quickly. It must live in another animal that it doesn't kill, an animal that can spread to feed. Previous campaigns to find the host animal have all failed, but this time scientists believe they have found the culprit, a fruit bat. Bats were tested before, but they always found to be innocent. The team believed that, believed that this is because the virus moves through the bat population like a wave in a bathtub, and bats previously tested several days after an outbreak have already passed the virus on. The team is now looking for bats from other areas without the outbreak to test this hypothesis. You're listening to Discovery, and that was the weekly science news with Adam Richardson. Well, people who complain about computer gaming tend to concentrate on the extreme graphic violence and explicit sex in some of the more popular titles. But is this an overreaction? I mean, you know, it's not like playing computer games can kill you, right? Not so fast there, Tex. People are starting to die from playing games online, and many folks are worried that they're as addictive as hard drugs. At 2 Pac-Man, Noel Hanna reports. Are computer games dangerous? Well, it seems to depend on who you ask. The parents of a 13-year-old boy from China are the latest to think so. Their son allegedly jumped to his death while reenacting a scene from the game World of Warcraft, causing his parents to file a lawsuit against the makers of the game. Surprisingly, this is not the first computer game-related death. In 2002, a 24-year-old man was found dead after spending 86 hours in, in a South Korean internet cafe playing a massive multiplayer online role-playing game, or MMORPG. In August of this year, a similar death occurred when a man suffered heart failure after almost three days of non-stop gaming. MMORPGs are hugely popular in both South Korea and China, with tens of thousands of internet cafes servicing millions of players. Massive multiplayer online RPGs are, are games which allow thousands of players to play online at the same time in an evolving world. You might have, you might have heard of games like EverQuest, World, world of Warcraft, Star Wars Galaxies, or Lineage which is perhaps the most successful MMORPG, with an estimated 10 million registered players, with up to 100,000 online at the same time, most of them in South Korea. These games involve a process known as leveling up, where the player must perform certain tasks in order to evolve their character. This requires a considerable investment of time, and has led to the phenomenon of gaming widows. These are people whose partners pay more attention to games than to them, a growing number of support groups and websites such as GamerWidow.com have been set up to deal with this. Which leads on to the popular question, are computer games addictive? Well, a study by Charite Hospital in Berlin has shown that gaming can be as addictive as alcohol or marijuana, with players showing signs such as an intense craving, withdrawal symptoms and neglect of all other interests. An interesting part of the study involved showing images of computer games to casual and excessive gamers. The excessive gamers showed a much stronger stimulus in the brain than the casual gamers when showed the images. The study also found no link between excessive game playing and aggressive behaviour. 
which seems to put another myth to bed. Another side of the argument is expressed in Stephen Johnson's book, Everything Bad is Good for You. This argues that computer games are actually stimulating our brains and teaching us new skills. So, are computer games bad for you? Well, it seems that the jury is out. You'll just have to play and find out for yourself. Noel Hannah there on the dangers of computer gaming. Now, we here at Discovery don't mind a bit of online fun. Just remember to take a break every day or so, all right? And that was G-Love with Sweet Sugar Mama. And you're listening to Discovery, the national science radio show. As the Pythons put it in their movie, The Meaning of Life, we'd better pray there's intelligent life somewhere up in space because there's bugger all down here on Earth. Across the globe, groups of dedicated scientists aren't praying about it. They're scanning the heavens for signals from beyond our planet. They're scientists with SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. SETI has been a sexy bit of science for a while. You can even help the search by getting a screensaver that downloads and processes SETI data while you're away from your computer. Carl Sagan wrote Contact, a book about a young, determined SETI researcher who discovers a message hidden within the radio noise from the cosmos, 
and makes contacts with beings from another world who end up looking just like her father or something. It's complicated. It was made into a film starring Jodie Foster a few years ago and it made a bit of a splash at the box office. The scientist believed to be the inspiration for the protagonist in Contact is Dr Jill Tarter, the Bernard M. Oliver Chair at the SETI Institute in Mountain View, California. Dr Tarter was in Australia recently and gave a talk at the University of Sydney on how SETI is going. She also held a workshop that tackled the question, let's say we do meet some aliens, what do we do then? I caught up with Dr Tarter before her workshop last week and asked her, first of all, just how do you go about searching for extraterrestrial intelligence? Well, you can't find the intelligence directly. What you can try and do is look for some evidence of someone else's technology, something that's modifying um, the normal natural environment in ways that we can sense over interstellar distances. And pragmatically, that has meant looking for signals, either radio signals or more recently optical signals. And we look for signals that have characteristics that nature, as far as we know, can't produce. I'm assuming we're not talking about someone sending a signal that says, hi, we're out here. So what are you looking for? Well, I'd take that signal in a minute uh, if that were what was available. But what we're looking for are artifacts in the electromagnetic spectrum. Our technology has figured out a number of different ways of producing signals which are very detectable above the noise that's always present. And these are the kinds of signals that we're looking for because nature doesn't emit in that way, but at least the technology that we know about does. So that means in the radio part of the spectrum, we're looking for signals that are crammed into a very small spectral region. And in the optical part of the spectrum, we're looking for signals that are compressed not in the frequency domain, but in the time domain. So very, very short pulses that will be broadband, white light, the kind of thing that a laser would put out. So you're looking for the kind of signal that would say to you, that's obviously coming from a technologically advanced civilization rather than just something natural. Or it could be coming from, you know, youngsters like us who are pretty primitive technologically. We expect that any technology out there that we can detect is going to be a lot older than we are. Technologies more primitive than us aren't detectable over interstellar distances. And SETI won't succeed unless technology, on average, lasts a long time. And if that's the case, if technologies are generally long-lived, then the ones that we are going to find are older. Have there ever been any occasions where you thought you had it? Have there ever been any false alarms? Yeah, there have been a few, and they're really exciting when they happen. The, the most long-lived and exciting one was uh, something that took place in 1998 when we were observing with two telescopes as the project that I ran for the last decade called Project Phoenix always did. These two telescopes are widely separated so that we can help discriminate against our own interference. And we were using a large telescope at, in West Virginia at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory and another telescope in Woodbury, Georgia. And then the Woodbury, Georgia telescope got hit by lightning and it fried a disk drive on a computer. So that was off the air for a few days, but any radio astronomer who has time on a radio telescope is going to keep observing. And so we continued to observe at Green Bank, and we got a signal. And it was a very interesting signal. We did the only thing we could do with one telescope at our disposal. We pointed the telescope away from the star we were observing. Signal went away. 
We pointed back at the star, signal was back. We pointed in a different direction, signal went away. Came back to the star, it was there again. So what did it turn out to be? Well, after hours, the star finally set, and we knew at that point that it probably, the signal wasn't coming from the star. But it took us a lot of internet research to find out that the signal, in fact, was coming from the SOHO spacecraft, which is studying the sun and is in orbit around the sun. So you found evidence for intelligence, just not quite the one you were looking for. That's right. And uh, we actually did an experiment and showed that when you get very excited, there isn't a lot of intelligence in the control room either, (laughs) because I had a clever idea, and I wrote a small program, I actually wrote it correctly, to look for the pattern that we were seeing in the signal and to query our database and say, have we ever seen that same pattern before from somewhere else on the sky? Got all this right, but when the data was spewed out by the computer, I misread the output, right? And I I missed the fact that, oh yeah, that pattern was there. We'd seen it before. So we spent another few hours longer than we would have had to in an excited and expectant state because I didn't get it right. Must have been a very exciting couple of days with a bit of a disappointment at the end. Listen, your workshop this afternoon is about, let's say we do find a signal, what do we do then? Well, that's a great question. Um, Carl Sagan had an answer when he wrote the book Contact and he, uh, he envisioned that around the observatory the world would show up and there would be this essentially circus environment with um, a religious component and, and car salesmen and other kinds of people trying to make money out of the event and people just curious. That may be the environment that we face or it may be that the uh, detection takes place in a geopolitical situation in the future where everyone's expecting it. We've educated the world to this possibility, and so no big deal. Oh, yeah, well, I thought that was going to happen one of these days. Nice to know that it fi- they've finally gotten there. Or it may play out in a geopolitical stage which is just fraught with tensions, and one party or another might try and somehow use this information to their own benefit. It's hard. When you talk to the sociologist, they tell us that people will respond to this information in terms of the belief systems that they hold at the moment. You obviously believe quite passionately in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence or you wouldn't have been working in the field for a very long time. There are obviously people who believe that there are aliens walking among us now, right through to the other extreme, which are people who believe we're the only ones around. How confident are you that in your lifetime we're actually going to make that contact? Are we alone? I don't know the answer to that question. And uh, you started out to say that I believe in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and that is quite true. I believe that it's very worthwhile to try and answer this old, old question experimentally. That isn't the same as saying I believe there's extraterrestrial intelligence out there. That's a question to which I have no answer. To quote a sentence, it was actually the last sentence in the first uh, scientific paper published on the subject of SETI. The probability of success is difficult to estimate. But if we never search, the chance of success is zero. So my answer is I intend to keep searching. Leading the search for intelligent life out there in space. You're listening to Discovery. Hello, this is David Bellamy. Honestly, it is. My favourite animal is sea otter. And my favourite community science show, what else but Discovery? 
And here on Discovery, it's time for the news that didn't quite make the news. We've got a couple of stories to get through this week. Adam, what do you got for us? Okay, first of all, scientists looking at Mars, they, they, they're using ground-penetrating radar to try and scan the surface of Mars looking for water. Uh, what they'd be looking for is lakes generally tend to be pretty flat. So as their radar scans across Mars, they should see a nice flat line just below the surface. And they found this uh, in the bottom of a, a 250-kilometre-wide crater. That's a bloody big crater about two kilometres underwater. They found a whole lot of structures that look a lot like rivers flowing into it, and so they're thinking they might have actually found a source of liquid water. How do, how do they know it's water? It could be liquid anything, couldn't it? Well, I guess it could. Um, <laughs> they can tell it's a different material likely. to the rock around it, but... I mean, uh, they, they know that there were, there were ice caps and stuff up there. Presumably they can look at it and go, oh, it's got watery stuff. You know, you look yeah, at, you they, look at they spectral believe, lines and things. believe they found... Uh, ice, water ice in, on the surface a couple of years ago on the North Pole. They must have sent one of the rovers over and had a drink or But th there wouldn't be too many other uh, substances that would um, that would be liquid at that type of temperatures, would they? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. And uh, also, they, they can, looking at the radar reflects, they can apparently tell between different molecules and from the electrical properties or some such. Oh, that'd, that'd be it. So water on Mars, it's only a matter of time before we've got a colony, surely. Noel, what do you got for us? Well... Um, surgeons in France claim to have performed the first ever face transplant. I've seen the film. Mm. <laughs> no, this isn't. This is Cage and, and, and what's his John, John Travolta. Travolta. Um, this is slightly different to that. There were no no criminals involved, no serial killers. Just French um, people. Just French people. <laughs> just your, your standard French people. Um, one of them was attacked by a dog. Hello to all our listeners in France. <laughs> and the other one was oh. unfortunately dead. And the dead woman's face was transplanted onto the other woman who had been attacked by the dog. And they managed to transplant her chin, lips, and nose. Which is not a bad effort when you think about, like, doesn't the face have more muscles and bits and pieces than pretty much anywhere else on the body? Like, it's a pretty An serious awful thing. Awful lot of face. nerves there. It's not like transplanting a buttock or something. Like, the face no. is, is hard. Yeah, it's pretty mm. complicated, uh, complicated procedure to do. And there are, I think, lots of teams, there's like, people in America and France and England all wanting to be the first to do this face transplant but um so this this is the first team to have got in there and, and done a partial face transplant but am i right in saying that um whilst you may be able to transplant somebody's face you're not necessarily going to look exactly like the person whose face you have received well, well is they that say right? um yes you, there's going to be a bit of a a mix apparently your your sort of bone structure mm. actually defines the the your, what your facial features will end up looking like so it's not it's not going to be John Travolta and Nick Cage where yes. you, you where sort you of see your dead the relative. Person. That's more a head transplant, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it's really. It's, and it's only a matter of time. That's the next surely. step. It's the yeah, next step. Yeah. Well, to, to finish off the, the uh, and finally not quite the news, here's one that we can all get a little bit cross about. Apparently, artists are having more sex than the rest of us. Now, what, what quick reaction around the table. What do you think about this? Artists having more sex than you and I, we scientists. Is it more sex or more partners? Ah, well, good question. Okay, well, we'll come to the details of that in a second. But do do we believe this? Like art artists getting around? Does that sound right to you? Oh, I don't know. Well, well we, we know they're not in classes at uni, so <laughs> that's right. <laughs> they've got to be doing something with their time. They always got long weekends at uni. It's just not fair. Well, here's here's the story here, right? 
apparently there's there's been a, a bit of a rumor going around for a long time that you're more creative types like your artists and uh, and uh, you know people who write poems and things like that are tending to have more sex so someone's actually gone and done the study uh, a guy from the university of newcastle upon tyne and someone else from the open university these are both uk researchers have uh, have gone and done a survey of 425 professional visual artists and poets amateurs and just regular people and they found that the arty types the professionals have had on average five or six sexual partners, the rest of us closer to about four. Now, this wasn't just a survey for the artists to go, hey, hey, we're getting it on with more people than you are. They reckon that there might be a bit of an evolutionary advantage here. I mean, if you think about it for a second, think of your peacock, right? Peacock's got big tail feathers to go, woohoo, look at me, come and have sex with me. Maybe having artistic ability is a similar sort of thing. It's a way of showing off. And if you can show off, and if you can get someone of the opposite sex to go, hey, I'd shag you, then you can spread your genes around, yeah? But Maybe how does being a starving poet feed your family? Uh, oh, that, that's question. my only argument with that. <laughs> <laughs> Just destroy the entire piece of research with a piece of realism there. Maybe it's that you can go, hey, sweetheart, I'll write your poem, you know, and that's kind of sexy, which is better than saying, hey, I'll, I'll name a theorem after you. I think it's I'll, all in the beret. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, face it, we we scientists we haven't got a hope because we can't, you know, we can't do anything that's that's sexy like that. That's what it comes down to, folks. indeed and that's it for another episode of discovery we've had fun if you've had fun why don't you let us know you can send us an email discovery at 2ser.com that's pretty easy isn't it you can also listen to us or if you haven't listened to us then you can go and do so okay i'm confused you can go and listen to us through our podcast that's at feeds.feedburner.com slash discovery radio or if you've got the itunes program you can just go and search for us under discovery on this week's episode, we had the news by Adam Richardson. We had some stuff about violent, nasty, deathly computer games by Noel Hanna. Matt Clark produced the show up here in the plush velvet studios of 2SER in Sydney. And Discovery's beamed across the country, thanks to our friends at the Community Broadcasting Network. I'm Chris Stewart. I've enjoyed being your host for today. If you have enjoyed the ride, join us next time, same time next week, for more sciencey goodness on Discovery. Discovery.